the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the June 10th, 2018 episode of the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast, a safe haven for ex-evangelicals or anyone restless about their faith or religion in general. Today's topic is why understanding good history matters in, in one's spiritual life, a former evangelical's discovery. Now, this subject is of personal interest to me because, well, yours truly is that former evangelical who made a lot of discoveries. But in particular, a major discovery I made is how much good, his, how much good history matters. And so here's the big idea. The big idea, and it's actually the big idea for this podcast, is that history matters much more than you think in forming one's spiritual worldview. Most Christians, for example, and I suspect most people in any religion, tend to forget or never really know their own religion's history. As Diane Butler Bass says, we get spiritual amnesia. Only by remembering one's history whether that's the history of the church or the Bible or how the Bible was compiled, for example, or perhaps the history of the cultures of antiquity or whatever, only by getting that history can one get grounded. And if you forget that history or if you never really learned it to begin with or you just have a biased or selective view of history, then you or the religion that you're in can come up with some really wacky and wild ideas that frankly need to be debunked. And this podcast will focus a lot on using good comprehensive history to debunk some of these crazy ideas. So good historical study not only leads to debunking things, but also leads to a more authentic spirituality. A faith shift of some kind, whether moving away from conservative faith towards something more thoughtful and reasoned, or perhaps even moving towards agnosticism, or perhaps the other way around, from agnosticism towards at least an openness to historical-based faith. So uh, we believe that all faith shifts that are grounded in a good study of history are good whatever direction they're going. So we're going to delve into this topic by me telling a story about how I evolved and how a good study of history informed the change of mind I experienced 
coming out of evangelicalism. But before we get that to that, though, I want to remind everyone, well, actually, since this is the first podcast, it's more of a notice that we really appreciate your feedback, comments, and questions after you hear an episode. And you can do that. You can post those on our website, michaelcampbooks.com, on the podcast page. Find the podcast and make the comment or question for that particular episode. Uh, We can't promise to address every comment or question posted, but we will pick out noteworthy ones and address them in the next podcast episode uh, when we can. So uh, we encourage you to do that. And another thing to expect on our podcast is a quote of the week and a book of the week recommendation. We'll be talking about a lot of resources on this podcast where you can learn history uh, and some good biblical or linguistic or historical cultural uh, information, uh, scholarship. So we'll try to suggest books to you, especially ones that have great material and are accessible. In other words, you don't need a PhD or need to be a rocket scientist in some topic to understand them. Okay, so let's begin our topic. Why History Matters, Informing a Spiritual Worldview, a Former Evangelical's Discovery. I want to start with the context of my experience, then share the red flags I saw that pointed me to the discoveries that came from looking more deeply at the history of my faith, and then give some uh, examples. I have four examples of why history matters so much. So let's start with the context. Whether you're an ex-evangelical, former Catholic, or came out of some other conservative religion, or have someone who is a dun, or maybe you're someone who is a dun, done with church, or someone who is a nun, having no religious affiliation now at all, or maybe you are still an evangelical or in a church, but you're having doubts, I think we, we can all agree on, on this one thing that I'm going to make a point on that there are some positive things that draw people into a religious movement. Uh, There's the sense of a close-knit community, friendships, uh, overcoming fear of the unknown, or perhaps overcoming guilt, getting answers to the big questions of life. I entered the evangelical movement in 1979 in this context, having some positive experiences in the first few churches I attended and the college ministry I got involved in, I also had a genuine spiritual experience where I believed I had encountered love. I'd I'd call it love now. Maybe it was the Spirit of God. Maybe the presence of the Spirit of Jesus. Or maybe just an epiphany that the driving force of the universe is love, and therefore I am loved. But it wasn't long before I realized, in this context of the evangelical community, I was getting red flags that made me doubt or question the religious doctrines I was hearing. The best way to explain this is to go through these four examples. Okay, the first example and red flag was what I noticed about how people interpreted the Bible. Sometimes it appeared pastors, teachers, authors, and fellow members were not deriving their opinion directly from the historical narratives in the Bible, but rather they were reading their preconceived ideas into the Bible. Uh, One blaring example of this was the way that people read the word church in the New Testament. 
Um, the word church is from the word in Greek, ecclesia, and it simply means a gathering of people when you study the uh, linguistics behind it. The same word is used in the book of Acts to describe a mob who attacks the Apostle Paul. But when you're a modern churchgoer, you hear sermons about church, and the modern understanding of church is read into those passages, not necessarily derived from them. So, you know, we have a vision of church, professional pastors, priests, clergy, church authority, church membership, church attendance, sometimes church buildings, denominations. But a good study of history shows us, shows us that when Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't talking about a building, building a movement of evangelical, fundamentalist, Catholic, Mormon, Protestant, or charismatic churches. He was talking about building a following of people who would uh, put his love ethic into practice. And history teaches us that both Jesus and Paul did not found an institutional church. The first gatherings had no professionals, no hierarchy, no titles, uh, no rule or, and authority over people. Um, this is a really fascinating topic, and we'll have a chance to discuss these this particular uh, phenomenon in later episodes. The second example in and red flag that I encountered was how people viewed the Bible. Um, you know, it, we were taught it was supposed to be infallible and errant, the altogether true Word of God. Any mistakes or inconsistencies were only apparent. There were there were always some Bible teacher uh, who could claim that they could explain away whatever inconsistencies you found in the Bible. Um, let's just give a, an example of this. Uh, a good one would be reading some difficult Old Testament passages that are violent and trying to harmonize that with the New Testament. Or perhaps reading something about God approving polygamy or tolerating sexuality outside of a monogamous marriage and people trying to harmonize those things with some conflicts in, with passages in the New Testament or conflicts with a traditional belief, etc. And what they were doing was they were shoehorning a modern conservative belief into an ancient narrative. You know, how can one harmonize the violent commands of God to execute people or kill the remaining women and children in a battle? How can you harmonize that with the forgiveness of Jesus, who said, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Or perhaps maybe that verse in, I believe it's Leviticus, where God commands, um, has a command for men who have two wives to, to love them equally. Uh, and someone tries to harmonize that with the traditional morality we're taught. And so what, what I noticed was rather than letting the chips fall where they may, or really looking into the history behind these passages to learn the context of the Bible, people always insisted the consistency of God's word in ways that appeared to me be, to be very overly simplistic. My later discovery years later was that a good study of history helped clear up these issues and allowed one to understand there is no need for harmonizing such narratives because the historical evidence points to 
inconsistent doctrines and theologies in the Bible and the history of the Jews. And that's not necessarily bad. The biggest discovery was learning how our Protestant Bible was compiled and how it was finally decided to be a definitive list of 66 books over hundreds of years. This is a really fascinating history that we were never taught in uh, the churches that I went to. Uh, You didn't even go there. It was just uh, unexamined that the Bible was was true and and, uh, and no one debated it. But when you look at the history, it's all it's very different than that. Um, there really was never an agreement on what should be considered the books of the Old Testament, not even not even until the second century, um, way after Christ. Uh, and and then with the New Testament, the compilation of that wasn't decided until the fourth century. And there were disputes over it. Um, And these disputes reveal more about how ancient Jews and Christians viewed the scriptures. Um, For example, uh, books like Revelation, Jude, Hebrews, 3 John, and some others. Books were highly disputed. And and, uh, there were other books that um, didn't even make it into the New Testament that some Orthodox Christians considered scriptures. Um, so the way that, uh, people viewed the Bible, uh, even Jesus and his earliest followers, um, was not the same way that evangelicals or other conservative Christians view the Bible today. And we'll learn more about this in, in future episodes. But in short, ancient Jews and Christians viewed the history of God's interaction with humans more like a debate not altogether settled in a definitive list of infallible books called God's Word that could never be questioned. And Jesus and people, people like Paul, entered into this debate. So those are the first two examples. And uh, right now it's time for a break and to look into our quote of the day and our book of the, I should say quote of the week and our book of the week. Let's start with the book of the week. And since this is actually the very first podcast, uh, this is going to be a shameless plug. <laughs> the first book of the week is one of my books. And uh, it's called Craft Brood Jesus. And the subtitle is How History We Never Knew Taps a Spirituality We Really Need. And if you're if you're enjoying this topic we're talking about today, um, this would be a good book for you. And I'll, I'll read a couple Amazon reviews to get you a feel for what other people are saying about it. But um, it's about a group of disillusioned evangelicals and Catholics who decide to meet regularly over craft beer and wine. And uh, they start studying the historic foundations of their own faith. And they start discovering things, things like I'm talking about today. And uh, those discoveries both rock their world in one sense, but also solve a lot of ancient mysteries. So um, let me read you a couple of the um, reviews that you could find on Amazon. By the way, just go to michaelcampbooks.com and you'll find this book or look it up on Amazon. Um, It was a couple of my favorite reviews. Actually, one of them just came in a few days ago, June 7th, 2018, which is kind of cool. But the first one I'm going to read says this. This is a fascinating and in-depth look at the evolution of Christian theology for all of us non-academics. Uh, 
For too many of us who were raised in denominational Christianity, it's a huge eye-opener. Doctrines we were taught as children that we took as sacred and absolute truth are examined with more objective historical perspective. It becomes clear that early Christian leaders did not agree about major issues. As we dig into the history, we realize that Christianity did not descend from heaven as a complete theological system. It has been argued and discussed, formulated layer by layer over hundreds of years. The result is a liberating journey that empowers readers to come to our own theological conclusions rather than naively adopting what we've been spoon-fed by others, many of whom are unaware of their actual history. So you can see how history has a lot to do with this book. And then the other one, the one that just showed up a couple days ago, um, uh, I am grateful for Camp and his band of fellows who took the time to study these things out. She's talking about the group that the story is about in the book. This book is well-written, easy to understand, and chock-full of references, which I appreciate. It, it shows that these aren't just ideas of the heart and soul, but easily displays the facts that many, myself included, have ignored. I would recommend this book for anyone who desires a deeper understanding of Christian religion, and especially to those who have a feeling of unease concerning Christian doctrine. So there you have it. That's my shameless plug for the book, for that book. Um, the other thing is the quote of the week. And the quote of the week is related to the next uh, example I'm going to give about why history matters. And uh, the quote of the week comes, uh, I put it in my first book, Confessions of a Bible Thumber, but it's on ch it's at chapter 8, uh, the chapter about last day's delusions. And uh, here is the quote. Those who don't learn from the past are condemned to write end times books. It's quoted by Steve Denny, and I believe a book that he wrote, and I got it out of a Mark Knoll book that he wrote years ago called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. So those are the book and the quote of the week. Um, we're going to go delve right into our next example uh, just in a moment. Okay, uh, we're ready to talk about uh, example number three, um, or red flag number three. For me, um, that has to do with the end. The quote was about, um, you know, there was there's this. All of a sudden, you realize as you get into the evangelical movement that people believe that we are in the last days, that the uh, end of time is on the horizon, that Jesus is going to come back and. Judgment Day, etc., etc. I won't get into all the details of that. There's various scenarios of that. Rapture, uh, whether it's before the tribulation or in the middle of it or after it. Or there's people that don't believe in the rapture but still believe we're in the end times, etc. Lots of different scenarios. But what I noticed was that when I read the New Testament, this wasn't immediately obvious to me that we were in the end times in the 20th century, there are the 21st century, uh, it seemed like the end of the age or uh, the time that Jesus was, was referring to in the New Testament and other writers was more about uh, what would happen in that next generation and that generation, as, Je as Jesus said. And uh, so that was just a little red flag I had and 
I had, you know, you, you buy into these things when you're in the evangelical movement because everyone seems to believe them. So, you know, you're not, you don't want to be in the minority, so you just kind of accept things the way they are. Um, well, years later, when I started to read history uh, and started to learn more about what happened in the first century and also uh, some of the uh, time indicators in the New Testament, um, then you realize that really this end time stuff is 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 uh, at best very misguided. At worst, it's a crock. That's very irresponsible, actually, for people to push. But that's an example um, for uh, if you if you looked at uh, the New Testament in a more objective way, looked at the original language, looked at what was happening in the world in the first century. Uh, it becomes clear that Jesus was not talking about something that was going to happen 2,000 years in the future, uh, especially if you read um, uh, the historian named Josephus, who wrote in the first century. He was a Jewish historian, and he wrote a book called The Jewish Wars. And that's very eye-opening because very many of the things that were supposedly predicted in the New Testament actually did come true in the first century, and Josephus has a lot of that material about famines and conflicts and and that verse about wars and rumors of wars. Um, so anyways, what you discover when you look at history is that it's much more likely and probable that Jesus was not talking about something far in the future, but something that was going to happen in the first century, and it likely did happen uh, close to the way that he said it, or um, at least... It, it, it's plausible uh, that that's the way it was. So that's the third example um, where you uh, are taught something or you are, are, are encountering some kind of a doctrine or teaching. And if you look under the hood more carefully and you look at the history, you find out that there's more to it than meets the eye. Okay, we are ready for our last example. And we are going to um, be talking about the doctrine of hell. This was one of the red flags. Um, I really struggled with this um, belief in hell as a new evangelical. And actually, within about three years of uh, joining the church and having this spiritual change, I uh, I went to um, Africa as a missionary with an a, a Christian aid agency. And there I lived in the country, um, in the Horn of Africa, Somalia, for a couple of years. And this was back in the 1980s, so it was before the Civil War. But, um, you know, 98% of the people who lived in this country were, were Muslims. And according to my evangelical theology, these people were all going to hell. Unless we did some fast and furious Bible thumping. Um, so to make a long story short, that was like... A red flag for me. Wait a minute. I became to love these people, became very good friends with them. Um, they had ancestors going back for generations that were Muslims. And why why are we believing that these people and their ancestors are going to hell unless they become Christians or some kind of a have some kind of a, uh, a Christian experience? So this is a, a great example of how if you don't know your history well, uh, you can be led to believe in, in this kind of a doctrine. Um, and the, what, what I want to just share with you about 
today as we finish up our last example here is that there's a lot of things to cover here, but I'm just going to try to give you an overview. Is, and basically, the first thing is to understand that uh, when we talk about history, we also mean the study of language and culture and understanding that people have, the original meaning in the context of the culture and the, in the, uh, where the teaching is taking place. So um, let's give some uh, examples of that. Um, there are three words when when you look at language, culture, and history of Judaism and Christianity. Uh, you'll discover there are three words that are translated hell. Um, Gehenna, uh, Sheol, or Hades, and another one called Tartarus. And there's another phrase, eternal punishment, that is considered to be hell. When you look at all of those terms, and we're not going to get into the details, maybe another podcast will deal with this, but when you look at all those terms, it's very disingenuous and outright inaccurate to um, translate those words hell. Um, they are more like metaphors for um, correction, um, uh, some kind of a judgment that is corrective, not retributive. Um, the term eternal punishment, that's a very bad translation. Um, I'm not going to go into it here, but the phrase is Aeonos Colossus, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Uh, being an amateur historian, uh, that's what we do. We mispronounce words in other languages. But um, the word eternal is really uh, a stretch to translate it eternal. And the word punishment or colossus, what we translate punishment, is really a term that means uh, correction um, or rehabilitation. And so actually the source Bible uh, cr uh, translated the rehabilitation of the coming age. So um, those are some examples of when you look under the hood more deeply, you find there are mistranslations. Another very interesting thing is when you look at the history of the doctrine of hell. And you discover that, first of all, it wasn't taught in the Old Testament. There was the concept of Sheol, the place of the dead in the afterlife, which was for the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, another thing is that the, the concept of hell didn't come into Jewish thought until the Babylonian cap captivity, and it had pagan sources. Um, and then uh, finally, um, there was, if you look at history of, of you know, where, which cultures taught the doctrine of hell and, and, uh, and had this paradigm of, 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 you know, a good place to go and a terrible place to go, and there was no, there was no way of getting out of it, um, you, you'll find all kinds of, of uh, quotes from uh, old kings and leaders and, and cultures that, that admitted that they, um, they were looking for a way to control the masses. And when you talked about the fear of the afterlife, that was a great way to control people. If you, do, if you don't do things the right way, you could wind up in hell. And, of course, Christianity picked up on this. Um, so that's a very interesting study, too. The history of the, of the doctrine, it came into the Christian faith, really, um, I argue that it wasn't even part of original Christianity, and it came into the Christian faith 
probably more um, in in the fourth century, and it developed over the years. And uh, Protestants even made it worse because they took away some of the softening features that the Catholics had, like you know purgatory and um, praying for the dead, etc. So that's a very interesting study. I've kind of wound through it very quickly, and I didn't really do it very much justice, but it's just an example of how when you look at history, you can learn so many things that are not examined in modern churches normally. Um, They might be discussed in seminaries and and in scholarship. Well, they are, but they don't normally make it to the level of of the uh, pastor teaching at your Sunday school or at the front of the pulpit. And so that's why history matters so much. And if you're trying to rebuild your faith, uh, you need to look at history really carefully so that you can be informed, have the resources you need to to either rebuild things or develop a reasoned philosophy of life for yourself. So um, those are the... uh, Examples that I gave, I wanted to add one more thing to the last example before I sign off here, and that one of the things that you'll find is that there is a um, a universalist uh, universalism um, movement throughout Christianity, uh, starting in the early years of the Jesus original Jesus movement on on throughout history, and we don't we're not aware that. We're not taught that very often, but there were universalist Christian movements. There were there were verses in the New Testament that, when you look at them carefully, they really are talking about um, a view of the afterlife where everyone is reconciled eventually. For example, um, as in Adam, all die, uh, Paul says, but he also says in Christ, all will be made alive. And I think there's a verse that says, I think it's Timothy not sure if it's first Timothy, but uh, Jesus is the savior of all uh, humanity, especially those who believe. Uh, and there's there's many other verses like that. So um, there's a partial partially we um, we we have this uh, view of of a doctrine that's really not based on the original evidence or on the history in the background. Um, not to mention the fact that Jesus' love ethic really doesn't line up with the doctrine of hell, of course. So um, just wanted to add that to the last example and let you know that um, uh, we will be discussing these kinds of topics on this podcast in the weeks to come. And uh, we will have a, um, a chance to answer your questions Go to the go to my uh, website michaelcampbooks.com. Look for the podcast and write your comments or questions about anything, and we'll try to put that into the next episode of the podcast or a coming episode. And um, look for a, a a book of the week. I will not do a shameless plug every week for my own books. No, there will be many other books that I will be recommending. Um, and just to give you a a taste the coming some of the coming um, episodes will be on things like the difference between Jesus and Christianity, twelve fake claims of Western Christianity, why the first step to authentic spirituality 
can be becoming sympathetic to atheism, the transforming non-religious message of the Jesus path, and how Jesus viewed the Bible and why inerrancy is dangerous. Yes, dangerous. <laughs> so those are some examples of uh, some topics that I would, I'm, we're planning on doing in the in the coming weeks. So thank you for joining us today. Um, this podcast is today is only about 32 minutes long or 35 minutes or so we're not gonna we're gonna try to make them that short not not too long um, but um, we might have special podcasts when we have it longer but that's generally the way it's going to be so we'll, we'll we'll wait for you to see us next time and thank you for joining us today the spiritual brew pub podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.